So we will do now what we do each week as well. We'll take a time to look at a passage from God's word. And we'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, uh, anything like that, uh, would you turn to our passage today, Matthew 13, beginning at verse 44. If you are able, when you found that, if you would stand together with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew 13, beginning at verse 44. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is God's word. You may be seated. A short passage today, but that doesn't mean I'm going to preach short. But uh, I'll do my best because I know it's our first Sunday in the, the heat of Dunbar. So uh, I'll do my best. But let me pray for us quickly just once more as we come to God's word. Spirit of God, would you open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to your word. Accomplish your good purpose through this word now. You tell us that your word doesn't return to you void when you send it out. So would you accomplish that good purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask, eternal God. Move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, when a man loves a woman, it's like, it's like he can't keep his mind on anything else. He, he would trade the world for this good thing that he's found. Give up all his comforts. Spend his very last dime just trying to hold on to this thing that he needs so much. Or at least, says Percy Sledge in his famous classic 1966 love song, When a Man Loves a Woman. Um, but, you know, in my own experience of the matter, he's not wrong. I mean, that is how it goes, right? I mean, when you find that person who, who fills up your heart as well as your eyes, it's like everything changes. Everything changes about the way you see your your priorities shift radically. It's, it's the exact opposite of that experience of what you often see on those shows we get stuck watching late night in hotel rooms like Antiques Roadshow or uh, American Pickers or whatever, where, where you've got something and you're not sure whether it's like a gold mine or it's just worthless. Um, no, in, in this situation, when, when, when you're in love immediately, right, the, the, the person that you love the, the value of them to you is immediately uh, and unmistakably apparent to you. You just get it. You're like, yep. Which I think is exactly what we see illustrated in these two parables that Jesus is sharing with his disciples in our passage today. Namely, the immediate understanding of the inestimable value of God's kingdom, represented by both this treasure hidden in a field and this pearl of great value found by the merchant. For, for a look at this, I mean, you see them acting in the exact same ways, the same kind of seemingly irrational accounting as those people who are in love, right? They, 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 they're assessing all that they have as worth nothing compared to this treasure that they've found. In fact, if you look closely, really, the only real difference between these two men is that one of them is actually searching for treasure and the other isn't searching for treasure at all. But either way, both of them sell everything they have in order to gain this treasure which they've discovered. 
But the problem is, is that what is true of being in love with someone can also be true of the treasure of God's kingdom. That is, either because of challenges, difficulties, because of uh, the, the luster or shininess of the treasure wanes over time, what was once of inestimable value to us can become commonplace, can begin to become in, be in competition with other things. And so while Jesus is undoubtedly highlighting the supreme sell the farm kind of value of the kingdom for the ones who first come to discover it, I mean, that's undoubtedly what the, the main focus of this par these parables are about. He's saying the one who first discovers this they see the value and they sell everything they have. I think implicit within Jesus' description is also a call for those of us who've already found the treasure of a new life in Jesus to assess whether we're still valuing citizenship in God's kingdom as worthy of everything we have to give. Do we still see God's kingdom as worthy of everything that we have to give? So, so what that means is there's something for everyone this morning. Whether you're just exploring the Christian faith or you've been a follower of Jesus for decades. There's something for everybody here today. So, in order to help us see what Jesus is showing us here about rightly assessing or maybe reassessing the value of the kingdom, I want to look at our passage today just in two simple ways. We're going to talk about love at first sight and then keeping love alive. Just those two things. Love at first sight and keeping love alive. So, if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to that passage? I want you to follow along, see what I'm looking at here. Come with me into this passage as Jesus describes this inestimable value of new life in his kingdom, as well as what he says is the only right response to that treasure once you've discovered it. Okay, so let's look first of all at love at first sight. And I know. <laughs> I can already feel the like eye rolling of just like, you know, love at first sight. I get it. That, that's kind of a, a silly, ridiculous kind of phrase um, that's not based any, at all in reality because it's based on this flawed assumption that you can actually love someone without knowing anything about them. I mean, obviously, that, that's not possible no matter what the fairy tales say. And yet, you know, that being said, I think we also know what most people mean when they say that, right? We know what they're talking about, that, that beyond just mere physical attraction, there's a, there's a sense. There, there's something when they meet that person, you can't put your finger on it, but, but, but it just immediately draws your heart along with your gaze. I think, I think that's what most people mean by love at first sight. I mean, that's certainly what I experienced when I met Sarah, my wife. Uh, I'm almost glad she's not here today to hear this, or either she would fact check me or I'd get all choked up emotional talking about it looking at her but we, we were both uh, attending 10th Avenue Alliance a church over on, on Ontario Street at the time and yeah man from the second I saw her it was like immediate hooked locked on like a tractor beam couldn't take my eyes off her it was just like I'm, I'm, I'm in and maybe you'd say well come on I mean Sarah's a beautiful woman like what's exceptional about that like yeah you liked you liked what you saw it, it's not exceptional, but here's what made it different. I was at a stage in my life where I had been basically chewed up and spit out by love. Okay, I was just like deeply damaged, heart deeply wrecked. And so at that stage in my life, I had basically sworn off any kind of romantic relationships. I was done, I was checked out. I'm like, you know what, I need a break from this. I need to just step away and heal and recover. 
And yet, didn't matter. Something about Sarah touched something inside me that despite the damage, despite the hurt, despite the fear, still made me want to suddenly risk again. Maybe want to sacrifice again for someone. And honestly, I didn't feel like I could ever do that again, or at least not for a long time. And yet, here I was. And so, no, I didn't, I didn't love Sarah the moment I saw her, no. And yet, something reignited in me when I saw her, something lit up, a light switch turned on, and I immediately sensed the value of what I had discovered in her. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is describing here in these parables as it relates to the instantaneous assessment of value that these men had in discovering their treasure. And we know that that's how they felt because more than just admiration, their immediate assessment led to radical action, right? Sacrifice of everything they had in order to attain it. And look, if you see there in verse 44, far more than just kind of begrudging, hand-wringing sort of resignation, like, oh, I don't want to, but I guess I'll pay. No, look, look, they sacrificed everything they had with joy at the thought of gaining this treasure. If I can get that Oh, man, I'll sell all this stuff in order to get that. That's their response in order to discovering this treasure. Uh, I love the way F.D. Bruner describes their radical sacrificial action, noting this. He says, one could say that joy is the engine of sacrifice if it were not for the fact that neither the farmer nor the merchant thinks for a moment he's making a sacrifice at all. Because of the surpassing value of the treasure in each case, selling was no sacrifice. It was good business. It was a joy. few quick things to mention about this parable. First of all, we learn back in verse 36, if you look there, Jesus is alone with his disciples in a house when he shares these two parables with them. He's not talking to the crowds in general. And I mention that just in particular because of what we talked about two weeks ago about Jesus' stated purpose in the parables, that they are both to conceal and reveal. The fact that Jesus is here alone with his disciples teaching them in private, that tells us this is meant to be more of a revelation. He's revealing the hidden secrets of the kingdom. Secondly, uh, while that pearl of great price, that whole section might seem kind of, you know, normal, understandable to us, you may have been asking yourself, why in the world a treasure worth selling everything that that man in verse 44 had would be buried in a field to begin with? What's that about? Why would you bury something of that kind of value out in a field? Good question. Uh, and the answer very simply has to do with the fact that at this point in time in history, there's no banks of any kind where you can store valuables. There's, there's nowhere to put anything, safely store it. And so, particularly if you were going off to war, or even more so, if you knew an army was coming, what you would do is you would take these valued treasures and you would bury them somewhere out only you knew, so that when raiders came, invaders, people came into your house, they, they couldn't find the things that were most valuable to you. So, uh, given that reality, um, what the commentators were saying here is that if, if you found a treasure somewhere, if you were to actually come across that, because it wasn't likely, but if you found something, more than likely the person who owned that treasure wasn't around to claim it again anyway. So well, all that just to say there's nothing sketchy or illegal going on here about this guy. He's claiming the treasure is his that he found. Uh, this was actually very much in line with Jewish law about finding these treasures. The only reason he covers it up and buries it and then goes and buys the field is to avoid any kind of counterclaims that might come. Like, say, if he's a worker working in someone else's field, when he finds that, the owner of the field might say, oh, hey, I own that field, you're working in my field, so hey, thanks for 
digging that up for me. Appreciate it. So he's buying the field just to make sure there's no like kind of counterclaims to take it away from him. But here's the thing. The, the, the point Jesus is making in the end is neither about the legality of how the treasure is found or attained. The point of these two parables for Jesus is about the value of the treasure itself. That's what he's highlighting for us here. That the kingdom, that this treasure which Jesus says is the kingdom, is worth everything we have in order to attain. Which is also important to know, lest we believe that Jesus is maybe implying that somehow uh, uh, access into his kingdom, entry into his kingdom, is something we can purchase. Uh, you know, if you just give enough, you can get your way in. That, that's not what Jesus is highlighting here. Yeah, you, he's not saying that, and you can't do that. No, again, he's, he's highlighting the fact that entry into his kingdom is, is worth, it's worthy of everything you have to give. But understanding all that now, I want to just take for a moment, is look at the circumstances very quickly that led to these people to an equally radical and sacrificial action. Because what I think we have described in these two parables is ultimately the two extreme ends of experience in which people come into contact with the treasure of Jesus. Like I said earlier, in one, you've got someone diligently searching for treasure. On the other, you've got somebody not searching at all. I think Jesus is saying the treasure is found in either one of these extremes and everywhere in between. Uh, it can be found everywhere. So just ask you briefly, like I don't know where everyone's at uh, here, so just put the question out there. If you're here and you're, you're listening to this and you have never heard the message of the gospel, you've never understood the offer of new life in Jesus, I, I would want to ask you what? Which one of those two extremes best describes where you're at right now? Like searching, you're like, man, I feel like there's something out there. I, wanna, I, don't, I don't know, but I want to find it. Or not searching at all. Somebody dragged you here. Uh, you, you, you were forced to watch this on YouTube, whatever it is. Which, which one best describes where you're at right now? Or if you would say that you're someone who already has discovered new life in Jesus, you, you, you've found the treasure of him and given your life to him in joyful response, which one of those two extremes best describes where you were at when you first discovered him? Were you looking for Jesus or did he just kind of drop out of nowhere? And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I love Jesus. <laughs> D.A. Carson is, is helpful in pointing out that these two extremes of circumstances where the treasure of Jesus is found and acquired are actually illustrated perfectly in the stories of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. For Paul, let's start with him. If you know his story, he, he's not searching for Jesus at all, right? If anything, Paul is trying to stomp out every last trace, trace of Jesus from the earth. doesn't want anything to do with him. And yet, the moment the resurrected Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus, all of a sudden he discovered the true treasure of Jesus. Uh, and, and just like that farmer in a field, he joyfully sacrifices everything in order to follow him. As he says so beautifully in Philippians 3, he says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's just a drop out of the sky. I'm not looking for him, and now I love Jesus. Then, on the other side, we got the Ethiopian eunuch, a man diligently searching for God. He's searching for God in the temple in Jerusalem. He's searching for God in the, in the scriptures. 
Desperate to find the treasure his heart is longing to find, and yet then along comes Philip running up alongside his chariot. He explains to him, he unpacks the Jesus of the scriptures, and suddenly he, he immediately sees the treasure of Jesus. He recognizes the value of him, and he sacrifices everything, committing his life to Jesus in the waters of baptism. Which one sounds most like you? Either where you are presently or where you were before you discover the treasure of Jesus. Here's the thing. The good news, first of all, for sowers of the gospel, and, and, and I say that because, remember, Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples who are already followers of his. The good news, first of all, for sowers of the gospel is that Jesus is able to reach people at both ends of the spectrum. Searching for Jesus, not searching for him, neither of those is a limitation to him. Secondly, neither man needs to be convinced to give up everything for the treasure once they found it. You notice that? When, when, when the treasure was discovered, they immediately understood its value. And like Eliza Schuyler, when she first meets Alexander Hamilton and her heart goes boom, they just immediately joyfully give everything they have in order to attain it. And, and I mention that because it's not everything. But I wonder if sometimes the reason people don't respond more positively to our gospel proclamation is because we spend so much time focusing on people's need for Jesus and you've got this sin that separated you from God. Our world is so broken by sin. All these things that describe people's need for Jesus and not nearly enough time focusing on the beauty of Jesus. The treasure that he is, who he is and what he's like and what he's done for us in order to, for us to be known by him and to know him. I wonder if that wouldn't make a lot more difference because our hearts are motivated by treasure, aren't they? Maybe we need to spend more time pointing to the treasure that Jesus truly is while talking about the need as well. And if anyone here today is still in search of treasure, or even if you're not in searching at all, the good news for you is that when you see Jesus at last for the treasure that he is, you won't need anyone to convince you either. You won't need anyone to, to convince you or, or do anything like that. And I think that's, that's the fear for people a lot of times when it comes to faith and religion and church. They, they, the fear is either like, how am, I, how am I going to know if it's happened? How am I going to know if, this, if there's anything different in me? Or the fear is, am I being tricked into something and it's not actually real? How am I going to know? When the reality is that just like that farmer in a field, just like that merchant with his pearl, just like me that Sunday morning at 10th Avenue Alliance, the value of that treasure, when you see it, it will become immediately apparent to you. And you'll know, here's how you'll know, because the immediate response of your heart will be love. It'll be love at first sight, and, and you will joyfully give everything you have in order to have it. Okay, so that's love at first sight. The last thing I want to look at together with you is how do we keep love alive once we have it, which I think is incredibly important to, to know. So let's look lastly at keeping love alive. Keeping love alive, and we need to look at this because although I've said it, admittedly, Jesus doesn't state explicitly in his teaching, I think implicit in his teaching, that every that entry into the kingdom of heaven through faith in him is worth everything we have to give. I think implicit in that teaching is the question to those of us who have fallen in love with Jesus, who have acquired entry into his kingdom by faith, do you still see Jesus as worthy of everything you have to give? Do you, do you still feel that way about him? And I think this is where the language of love and relationships 
comes back into play again, right? Because it's one thing to have joy the day you first meet. It's one thing to have joy the first couple months together, maybe even the first year and a bit together. It's another thing to maintain that joy in one another 10, 20, 47 years into the game. It's a whole different thing, right? Joy when you first see the value of someone is easy. It's like buying a puppy. First day you buy a puppy is awesome. It's joyful. It's exciting. Oh, isn't it awesome how they bark all the time? Don't, oh, he peed on the rug, you know, whatever. It's every day after that. That's, that's the hard part, right? That's the challenge of like, okay, so now we're doing this. All right. How do we maintain that joy in this thing which once had so much value? And it's interesting because if you remember back from two weeks ago, and I trust you can remember that, in the parable of the sower, joy was the response. It's how Jesus described the reception of the seed of the gospel that's planted in rocky, shallow soil. I'll read it for you. Verse 20. Jesus says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So that that love at first sight with someone, it, it is joyful at first, but when challenges begin to emerge in the relationship, uh, the bills, financial pressure starts to pile up. Illness comes into the picture. Um, the, the, the heat of sexual intimacy goes from like red hot to barely a simmer, whatever it is. And all of a sudden, that, that joyful desire to give everything we have in order to hold on to that treasure is gone. Like, I don't know if I have that anymore. Or consider the, the thorny soil, the next soil that Jesus talked about there uh, from his parables where he said, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word so that it proves unfruitful. Remember, this is the soil where we ask Jesus to share control of our hearts with something else. You see it here? In either case, that initial response of joyfully selling all that we have in order to attain that treasure with Jesus can, it can wane over time. When the polish and the shininess of that treasure begins to fade and continues to weaken if left unaddressed, that the love can continue to weaken. Or it can prove that actually that joyful reception to begin with was always only kind of transactional to begin with. That is, um, I'll continue to give everything I have to hold on to this treasure as long as it continues to feel valuable to me. I'll continue to give everything I have to this as long as it continues to bring me joy. Keller is masterful in unpacking this waning of our joyful desire to surrender all that we have, or at least the reason behind it, noting as it relates to the farmer and the merchant of their selling all their material wealth in order to gain their treasure. He says this, the reason they were able to do a transfer of material wealth was because in their heart they had already done a transfer of emotional wealth. You hear that? The act of transferring their material wealth was actually preceded first by the transfer of their heart's treasure. So the question then becomes for all of us, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you transferred the emotional wealth of your heart to Jesus? And have you done so in a way that it's not just that initial joyful reception, but that it continues to be your greatest treasure? Because the reality is that for most, if not all of us, the answer is no. Or at least not yet fully. I haven't fully done it yet. We've transferred some, in some cases, a great deal of our wealth to Jesus. And what I mean by that is not just money, but like our time, our talent, our effort, our devotion. 
For many of us, we've, we've transferred a great deal of our wealth to Jesus because he, he's, a, he's valuable to us. He's, he is a treasure to us. And yet, rather than selling everything, like everything, saying, which means saying, Jesus, everything I have is yours. You can do whatever with whatever I have. That's what that looks like. Most of us have what I'm calling a shoebox. We got a shoebox buried in a field somewhere with something that's just for me. You know what? I've, I've given you everything, Jesus, but this, this thing is for me. I'm going to hold on to this piece here and, and something that we're seeking to treasure alongside Jesus. And what, what Jesus is presenting in both of these parables is that whatever you got in that shoebox, that's what you actually treasure. No matter what you say, no matter how much of your wealth you've portioned off to give to Jesus, what's in that shoebox is what you actually treasure. And that's why I love, hate, F.D. Bruner's comment on these parables, noting this. He says, few places in the New Testament spell out the two main foci of the gospel, grace and demand, and put them in proper order as do the gem parables. First, the jewels, right? They discover the treasure first. It's presented to them. This is yours. And then selling. But without selling, there's no possession of the jewels. And again, I don't want us to get confused. In no way is Jesus saying entry into his kingdom is something that can be purchased. That's not what he's saying. But in both parables, the treasure they discovered is only acquired once they've joyfully sold all they have in exchange for, right? Discovered the joy, and they discovered the treasure, and then they joyfully sell all they have in order to have it. I think that's what Bruner means by the demand of the gospel. Because here's the thing, for too many people... All through the history of the church, we give into or we become convinced of the mistaken belief that Jesus wants to be a big part of your life. Jesus wants to be included in, in, in your decision-making processes and that kind of thing. Jesus really wants to be a part of your life. When, when the truth, the unmistakable truth of God's word is Jesus saying, if anyone would come after me, read, if anyone would truly see me as their greatest treasure in their life, let him deny himself. And take up his cross. That is, sell at everything. Surrender everything you have to me and follow me. Why? For anyone who seeks to save his life, whatever you seek to hold on in that shoebox, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever surrenders everything for my sake, will find it. So what about you? Have you transferred the emotional wealth of your heart to Jesus? Or is Jesus still a treasure that you don't see as worthy of everything that you have? Let me be personal with you for a minute and just say to you that the, the answer to that question for me, even as your pastor, is no. Or not yet fully, I haven't. And if you could see into the field of my heart and what I've buried off in my little shoebox is very often what I seek to put in there is my family. That's, that's a treasure that I often ask Jesus to share the wealth of my heart with. And I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on how to keep that soul 100% Jesus is everything love alive. And so here's what I've, here's what I've tried to do in order to work on it. To, to combat that mistaken belief that I can treasure both things, 
to keep that joyful sell the farm of love alive for Jesus alone, what I do, first of all, is just remind myself often, Jesus, you are my greatest treasure. You are the treasure that is worth more than my family, worth more than anything else that I could have in this life. I, I just actually say it out loud to myself. You'd be surprised the power of actually speaking that truth out loud. I can still remember the joy, the delight and laughter of my kids when we would, I started to kind of get this idea to do this. We'd be driving around in the car and I would actually say to them, I'd be like, Izzy, I love God more than you. And I love God more than you. Sarah, I love God more than you. And, everyone, and they'd be laughing, they'd be like, oh yeah? Well, I love God more than you. And ha, 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 we'd laugh about it. It's funny. I mean, try that. Next time you're out on a date or at a family gathering, look the person or the people you love in the eyes and say, I just want you to know I love God more than you. I, I love you. You are not my treasure. And just see how they react. Because it feels strange like somebody's saying that to you. But it's true, right? Man, do I need that, that confession regularly in my heart to say that out loud. Jesus, you are better than this. That's the first strategy to keep love alive in my heart for Jesus. Another is to spend time regularly focusing on the beauty of Jesus myself. We talked about focusing more on that in our presentation of Jesus to other people, but I need to focus on that same thing just as much myself. I need to see it regularly and often. Not at all because the treasure of Jesus somehow becomes less valuable over time. Uh, it becomes less worth everything I have to give. No, but because as the well-known hymn says so often, my heart is prone to wander. I'm prone to transfer the affections of my heart to other good things. And so maybe you're the exception to the rule. I don't know. But when it comes to focusing on, on the treasure of Jesus, here's what I know for myself. I can't accomplish that in 90 minutes once a week in a Sunday service gathering. When, when every other waking hour of my week I am walking through a, a trade show of shiny things vying for my heart's affection. 90 minutes sitting here with each other once a week on Sunday is, is not going to combat that pull to treasure other things. Which means, yeah, regular daily devotion. Time actually scheduled for time in God's word, for time in prayer. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So it means spending time in God's word and prayer, all, all that stuff which we kind of sigh at. It's not something that I'm supposed to do because I'm a Christian. It's something we need to do. We need to do in order to combat that constantly pounding presentation that, that there's something better than him that's constantly coming against us. I need to remind myself of the superior beauty and value of Jesus above all these other things that are vying for my attention and affection. Because when you see it, when you're looking at it, just like the, the farmer and the merchant, it's easy. The choice is joyful. You're like, of course that's worth more. It's only when we lose sight of the beauty of Jesus, as we all do, that the infinitely superior value of that treasure dims and begins to wane. When you look at these two parables, uh, what Bruner there called the gem parables, and you look at them in relation to that parable of the sower. Again, we looked at two weeks ago in those four different soils uh, where the seed is planted. I want, I want Something important I want us to remind you of in closing is that just because Jesus is the greatest treasure, 
he's worthy of everything we have to give doesn't mean that everyone is going to see Jesus when they hear about him and are presented with him and respond in the same radical sacrificial way. They're not all going to do it. One obvious example of that being the story of the rich strong ruler a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19. Listen to what happens here. Behold, a man came up to him, this is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, Here it is. If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess. Give it to the poor, and you will have great treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And the young man heard this. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Again, I'm going to keep hammering on this. Material wealth is not payment for entry into the kingdom. It's not how we acquire the treasure of Jesus. No, well, just as is true for any of us, Jesus calls us to lay down everything and follow him, not because he needs anything from us, but because he's worthy of everything we have to give. But as Keller pointed out, that the giving of our emotional wealth precedes the giving of our material wealth. And so when called to do the latter and lay down his treasure, what the rich young ruler demonstrated was that where the emotional wealth of his heart was truly located was in his possessions. He said what he valued was the kingdom. He said what he valued was eternal life. But what he had in the shoebox was his stuff because he had a lot of it and it was good stuff. That's what he truly treasured. So where is it located for you? Where is your heart's treasure truly located? If you've welcomed Jesus as the treasure of your life already at some point in your life, but now you find that that treasure is beginning to fade, that the beauty of it is beginning to fade, uh, it's beginning to be in competition with other things, if that's where you find yourself today, just as I said, I, I invite you to take on that same strategy. Speak the truth to yourself out loud and even to other people appropriately uh, as often as you can. Jesus, you are my greatest treasure. You are worth more than any of this stuff. And focus your heart often and regularly through the week on the beauty of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the self-giving of Jesus to remind your heart of what it already knows but regularly loses sight of. And if you're here or, or, or you're hearing this right now and you'd say you've never seen Jesus yet for the treasure that he is, my prayer for you today is that searching or not searching that God's spirit would open up your heart to see the value of Jesus, that you would find and discover him for the treasure that he truly is. He really is a treasure worth everything you have to give. And he's worthy of it because he's the only God who gave everything in order to have you. But here's the thing. Last thing, promise. None of this is about having to give up or, or walk away from or abandon all of those other things that you value so much in your life. Not for a second. Sadly, that's what I think causes many people, like the rich young ruler, to walk away from faith, walk away from the treasure of Jesus, or, or continue to try to hold little pieces in shoeboxes because we feel like what it means if, if I have to treasure Jesus above everything, I just have to get rid of everything else. I can't value anything else in my life. As though Jesus is saying, have nothing else of value in your life or you can't be my disciple. That, that's not the call of Jesus. 
The call of Jesus is, is something that I remind you of often here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus saying, make, make me the first thing in your life, the highest value over everything else in your life, and all these other things that you value so much will be added unto you as well. Because you see, the, the call of Jesus, his, his, his purpose is never to take when he calls us to lay down everything, but only in order to give you those good gifts in a way that you can truly hold them to give you those gifts in a way that you don't either crush them under expectation or you're crushed under disappointment when they fail to provide what only the treasure of Jesus ever could. We'll never do this on our own. We need the Spirit's help in order to accomplish this. So Spirit, help us. Help us in our weakness. Help us to see you and, and seek out seeing the beauty of you always and often to keep the affections of our heart first and foremost on you. I ask that in Jesus' name.